Today's reading is from Ephesians chapter 1 verses chapter 1 verse 22 through chapter 2 verse 7. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is in which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved, and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks Thanks be to God. You know, sometimes you have to write, send the text over to, um, to um, Joyce for putting together our worship. I'll, sometimes I'll, I'll immediately, almost immediately, I'll have this moment where I go, wait, I want to add a little more, or I want to take something off, or I want to, because, and the reason I say that right away is because the next expression in the text is, for it is by grace you have been saved. He repeats it twice. And I think there's something vital about that. By grace you have been saved. By grace you have been saved. By gra-. There's a crescendo there. There's something there. The reason I even bring that up is I want to, I, I'm kind of, uh, if, I don't know if you all noticed it, you should be thankful. We're in chapter two. Anybody excited about that? It's taken a year and uh, we're here. We're in chapter two. But one of the things I want, you, I want you to note, and one of the things I want to walk with you through is understanding the heights and the depths this text goes to. Do you, have you noticed it? But just take a look, take a look at that last verse of chapter one. It is triumphant. In fact, it is the climax of what is almost a single sentence in that entire first chapter. And and Paul has been emptying his soul with the greatness and supremacy of Jesus. He's all about presenting God's choices, God's power, God's, God's love and election. He's painted a story older than time. Before the foundations of the world. And he's painted, a, he is with charged syntax and phrase upon phrase, he continues to present to you the glories of Jesus. And this, this final statement here all things under his feet, this idea that Jesus is resting on the world like a footstool. And this idea that he, he is the fullness he's been given to the church, and he, he is the fullness of, that fills all in all. And then this, I want you to, it's all, it, I don't know if you can feel it, I want you to feel it in the text. But you were dead. It's almost jarring. It's just, all of a sudden there's a shift. And we're, 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 we're kind of confronted with some of the jarring ugliness of sin and the reality of what his triumph from Christ means. But I want to I I talk about that abrupt switch, that switch and why it happens, and why I think it has to happen in, in Paul's mind and what he's thinking. And so uh, there's, uh, the, the contrast and, 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 the, and, the, and the movement from one to the next is 
something else. But the first thing I think it does, and the first thing I think it does as we come to this text, is that it's like, um, put it this way, uh, there's an old Danish proverb, I remember reading this in Kierkegaard, and, and he quotes this old Danish proverb, things are often, or exactly how it goes, but things are not in the world the way the preacher preaches. The way, things are not really in the world the way the preacher preaches. Boy, I'd hate, to, I'd hate to think that's true. I would hate to think that I was up here painting a rosy picture or somehow giving you something that, that wasn't really about the grit, the death, the destruction of this world. Like, that wouldn't be fair, would it? Of course, we continue to paint you know, these pictures of grace and God's greatness, but not really deal with the fact that you and I deal with so much death and ruin. And I guess... What I love about chapter 2 and this wonderful shift that happens here is all of a sudden, God got real. In other words, all this piling up of metaphor, all these piling up of superlatives, right? This, this greatness of God, this greatness of Jesus. Well, I need to know, and you need to know, we need to have a gospel that wrestles with death and the problems that we really face, the, the, the destruction of this world, the course of the age, the, the sense of the demonic and the destruction around us, the, 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 the ugliness of sin and, and the death that is born out. Right? And that's exactly where he goes. He, he turns to the anger of God even. And so there's this, there's this sudden like, whoa, whoa, whoa moment in chapter 2. And, and, and the change, is, it, it, it accentuates, it, it kind of enlarges everything he said so far. And I think, there, I, I think initially for me, my first thought was, there's a, there's a certain kind of realism. Now what I want you to call your attention to is, is the reality that God describes. And we're going to take a look at this reality God that's described here in chapter 2. And you'll see the world has parts, and its fallenness is, is, is a fallenness of the world, the flesh, and the devil. You may have heard those terms before. They're all, it's all here. It's all here in this text. But then as I was kind of, as I want to mine that for understanding our world, understanding ourselves, understanding the world in this context we live in San Francisco, you know, there's more there. There's, there, there's more there. I, I, what does it mean that this world is dead? Like, what, what's the implication? What's the implication for evangelism? What... Does it, why? And what does it mean if Christ fills all in all? If he truly fills all in all? What does it mean that there's a prince of the power of the air who can work in the sons of disobedience? How is he able to do that if Christ fills all in all? You see? It brings up all sorts of questions, doesn't it? The text starts, all these questions start coming out. What's, what is this? That's, I'm hoping we'll, we'll mine these together. And so the first thing, I, first thing I love about the Bible is its realism. Is its realism. And, 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 and it's, it's realism especially about this world. Uh, I love it because, I've, I've said this before, because if the, if, if the Bible can get it right about the problem, then I can trust its solution. Like if it's doing a good job of diagnosing and really talking about the ruin of this world in an accurate way, then I can trust its solutions. That its solution can have meaning for me. Now, its pessimism is powerful. Let's just walk into it at the tremendous pessimism that happens in 
chapter 2. You were dead in your trespasses and sins in, once, in which you once walked. What's, what's, what's the verdict? What's God's verdict on the world? Living death. Did you catch that? Dead in the trespasses and sins in which you walked. The, the, the initial diagnosis, the initial picture, the initial, the initial grim outlook uh, when you look at Dolores Park, is a living death. You know, it's funny, our culture is very familiar with this kind of metaphor. George Romero made a killing off of this idea. George Romero, the guy who did Night of the Living Dead, all the zombie movies. The zombie movies have become an entire, an entire uh, uh, genre, genre, right? Now, Romero was clever, though, and he would have told you the whole point of the living dead was to point out how the mass of humanity is driven by consumerism and is, is in itself a living death where people are non-reflective and don't care and don't think about it. He, he was mining this idea, this metaphor of death, for his movies as a social criticism of America. You know, it's, it, 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 it's not, uh, not lost on me that in one of his movies, all the dead people go to the mall. <laughs> like, like that's the epicenter of, of the event. They all go to the mall. In other words, they're continuing that act out. Uh, the, the death of the, their death, what, what Romero was criticizing, their death, our death is a consumer culture. But this is much more grim than that. This is an unequivocal statement about the world around us. Let's go on. It's a living death, but it's a living death that's even worse than just, just being, it's, it's a living death en masse. Look, it's a living death that just follows. Look at it, in which you once walked, following the course of this world. So we're, first we're, we're introduced to this idea of living death and how that death is happening en masse together in the course of this world. The course of this world, it's a strange, it's a strange expression in the Greek. It means the age of this world. It, the, 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 uh, you ever heard the zeitgeist? The spirit of a time, the spirit of an age. And what he's describing is that there's a, there's a death together. It's not just that uh, the folks in Dolores Park are, are living dead. The things they believe in are dead systems, dead ideas, dead concepts in the course of this cosmos, of this world. It's death and mass, death together, all around. First, so, so one of the enemies it begins to describe, and as you understand, understand your world, to really get what your world's like, God's diagnosing it. The living dead, you work amongst the living dead, and you live in a community that embraces the principles of a dead, dead idea and death itself, the course of death. Let's keep going. Let's keep going. So your living death follows the course of this world, which is also following what? following the demonic, uh, demonic power of Satan. By the way, uh, this is kind of fun. This might be a fun little note for you, but I didn't realize this until I was in this text. <laughs> but that word air is the same in Greek as it is in English. You know that? That's kind of fun. The word, it's the word air in Greek, A-E-I-A-I-R. Same, it's the same word. Or it's, it's a cognate. It's where we get it from. But the prince of the power of the air. So, you know, it's, it's one of those, another one of those weird little titles for, for, for our enemy, the devil. And, and it's this, and, and we're being introduced, of course, to the world and the devil. These are the players, right? And I want you to get this picture. This is what's being painted in the text. You are walking in a living death, following a parade of death. 
following the master of ceremony, the prince of the power of the air, the master of death, as it were. The Lord, he's not really the Lord of death, is he? No, my Savior's the Lord of death, for he conquered it. But there's this picture of this parade that is, that, is, that, is, that is, in an essence, our diagnosis of our present age and everything that happens. Let's keep this continuing to go. The spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh. There's your flesh. The world, the devil, and the flesh. And so we're introducing us to this diagnosis of all the different parts around us. So you can see, so you can too, you too with me can start pointing them out. You can start identifying them. You can start seeing them, start understanding. But if we look at this text, it gets even worse than that. For it's not merely these different parts, the world, the flesh, and the devil. It's also the passions of the flesh carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. So you have a corruption here. A corruption, not only, we, we all can identify with the idea of wrong desire, but the corruption is profound. It's a corruption of intellectual ability. It's a corruption of the mind. It was Augustine who was very famous, and Augustine, it was, Aquinas was famous for saying this in the Middle Ages, that we're fallen, we're fallen, but our minds aren't fallen. We, we have the ability to think and have thoughts and truth in our brain, and surely our, our minds are not dead. But that's exactly what this text exactly what it is claiming, exactly what it's saying. Now, these, these, these metaphors for understanding this generation, understanding our world, understanding our lives and our world, um, they don't have a lot of life with us as Christians in the rest. And I, I don't quite get why. And I, you, know, you know how, you know how uh, in this text, Paul's, Paul's acting on a principle of prayer, praying that the eyes of your hearts would be enlightened so you could see the great riches of God and his grace and you could understand him. But there's, an up, there's, a, there, there's part of that enlightening, a part of that opening of the mind is for us to truly see the context in which we live, work, and move. The actual conversations we're having. Why is this so vital? Because, because there's no compassion amongst them. This is what I, this is what I see. I, we don't have this sense, and I don't give from us a sense, a sense of earnestness. The people you love are dead. Living dead. Where's our compassion? Where's the earnestness? Where's the sincerity? Where's the, where's the sense of, 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 of timeliness, of need, of urgency, of, of passion, of desire? Where's, where's pity for us? You know, it's funny. I, maybe it's just a product of the outrageous level of our wealth and our success and all the beauty around us and all the entertainment, but it, it creates a mirage, doesn't it? We just think that people around us are alive. <laughs> it really, it's, it's so compelling to us, it's so convincing. And so much of the church is asleep in this way. And I don't know, I don't know how to shake us. <laughs> It feels like the same miracle that, 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 that was so necessary for a dead man to live is necessary for Christian hearts to be sensitized again, you know, to the, to the grimness, the, the, the abattoir that our culture really is, the, the death dealing that is so, what? What? Oh, um, place for killing things. Sorry about that. Um, but yeah, uh, thank, thanks, for, thanks for pointing that out. Um, 
But the point here is that, is, that, is that there's this horrible sense of follow the leader. Prince of the power of the air, followed by the course of this world in a dance and a parade of death. And we are largely and deeply unmoved. Why? Why is that? Is it the diagnosis is not, has eluded us? Is it not, is it not bitten? Is it not bit deep? Um, are, are you tricked? Have you been tricked? Have we all been tricked into believing that, that, these, that these, dead, these dead souls live out here? How about the people you love and, are, and, and love dearest in life? Family, the people you're closest to, the people you, you want the very best for. And realizing that some of those people, some of those people I love with my whole heart are, are walking dead. But I still don't see, I still don't even see in my own heart a panic, a fear. Until I start talking about my own son. Still I start thinking about my own boys. And then I start thinking, then I start worrying. What kind of blindness are they living in? But we can reduce, we can even go further. If we look at the very end of verse 3. We were by nature children of wrath. And maybe this is where I need to take this. Maybe I need to take off the gloves and stop being polite. In other words, there's a certain politeness that we have with one another. Well, you know, you don't want to say these people are just dead as a door now. You don't want to say that. And, and yet the scriptures continue in their relentless push. Not only are they dead, not only do they follow one another into death, not only do they follow the demonic, not only are their desires corrupted, their mind is corrupted. Not only is that true, but the relationship with God is one of wrath and anger. Why is it that they're dead? Why is it that the parade of death is tromping through this world? And why is it that you don't give a crap? I think we're dealing, I think we're in a time of the judgments and the anger of God right now. I think that's part of what this generation we're experiencing. Our lack of passion about it, our lack of a vivid call, is we're not wrestling with how personal this is. This isn't, God hasn't just said, he hasn't wound up the world and go, all right, let it go off a cliff. This is a personal response to, of God. He is angry with the world, angry with this generation. And the death that the, those folks are parading around, do you know they're having fun over there right now? As much fun as dead people can. But the fallout of this parade is because of God's anger. Now, why do I begin with this terrible, this, this first, this first um, statement out the gate? Well, in this horrible game of follow the leader the world is playing, you need to get out of the line. <laughs> you need to get out of the parade line. And what I mean is, is that the world is, wants, wants to take you along. It wants to tell you, oh, do you know why there's problems in America? It's because of education. Or it's because we need more social reform. Or it's because we need new racial reconciliation. Oh, those things are all so beautiful, aren't they? They're all so great things. Maybe they're real needs we have. But again, if a blind man leads a blind man, both of them fall into the pit, don't they? <laughs> both of them fall into a hole. And what I want you to do is unhitch yourself from the New York Times op-ed part. And unhitch yourself from the pundits on Fox News. And unhitch yourself, from, unhitch yourself from all these versions of what's going on. Because they're wrong. 
They failed to tell you, they failed to bring you and deliver to you the insight into this age. We so need an insight. We need to stop listening to blind guides and be tricked ourselves into thinking we can figure out some diagnosis of our age or our times. We can't. Well, we cannot seem to do so. So don't follow those blown guides, but use these diagnostic tools. And I guess as I'm even thinking about it, right in this moment, ask God to arouse your compassion for those dying around you without a Savior. Because there's no way I can verbalize it in a way to create it in you. And I guess what I'm asking for for myself and for our church and for you is for you to have the heart of Jesus because Jesus can't look on that spark without crying and wanting to shed his blood for those folks. Praise him! But we were unmoved. Well, I'm picking on the folks at Dolores Park because, you know, they're such a bunch of sinners. How about all the people you work with and for and around, people you go to school with? How have you understood your world? And have you understood it with its desperation that this text brings to us? So I love the realism. I love the jarring realism. Christ is on the throne, but here we are. Here we're being presented. This is the state of the world. And it rings true. It rings deeply true in these hellish generation we live in. And all the things that have gone wrong. I want to follow this up a little more. Because don't you see that there's a problem here now? Because what we just did is, and it's a very interesting thing that Paul's done here. He describes Christ in the most exalted terms. Everything's under his feet. He, he uses the, uh, the, this uh, term for omnipresence. He, is, he fills all in all. That means the reason Satan can get away with what he gets away with, and the dead folks can get away with what they get away with, and, all, and, and, and that these, in, these, uh, these evil desires are manifested and acted upon, and why the mind is corrupted, and why, you know why that's all going on? Well, God is still holding the world together. There's no evil act that doesn't happen right in the face of God himself. This is, how, this is what it says in Psalm 90. You have set your secret sin, our secret sins in the light of your face. You put them right in front of your face. This brings up a fascinating kind of, well, it brings up a, a potential problem. Well, is God the author of evil? May it never be, right? God cannot be the author of evil. He is, he is utterly, completely, eternally, fully good. He can never be the creator of evil. So what is going on here? Why does Paul say he fills all in all and then describe a bunch of bad behavior by the prince of the power of the air and all of us, all these dead folks walking around living out their corrupt desires and their corrupt minds? Well, it's uh, God's, sovereign, God's sovereign choices that have been on display in this text so, much, so powerfully, so this, viscerally, so fully. Well, they're telling us something. And there's a truth here. Putin, Putin, or any other bad actor you want to pick, or you consider a bad actor, can only do what they do because God permits it. God is actively permitting evil in the world. Yes. Yeah, he is. That's what this text is teaching. 
But I want you to reach into this a little more deeply with me. In Romans 1, it says that God handed them over. God sometimes will hand people over into their sins. Hand them over into the wickedness. Hand them over to the very things they want. Now that, that, that language is interesting because you know what handing over implies is happening, has been happening since the beginning. What has God been doing the whole time? Holding us back. Holding us back. Holding the reins in on the world, the flesh, and the devil. That is what it means he fills on all of it. You know, moral depravity, sometimes people take, you know, talk about human depravity and the concept of total depravity and say, well, wait a second, human beings aren't as bad as they could be, you know, and, and, which is true, praise God, we're not as bad as we could be. And you ought to praise God for that because it is his restraining, constant will that keeps us from the ruin and destruction which we are so pregnant with, we're so alive with, which is so real in the things we do. God just keeps us from doing a lot of bad stuff. Has God ever kept you from doing something bad before? Have you ever caught God doing it? It's happened to me. I, it's happened to me. Sure as I'm standing here, where I intended to do something wicked. I remember one particular, I was going to go out with a girl that I should not go out with. It was many, many years ago in college, and I'll never, ever forget this. My car didn't start that day. I remember just being like, really? You're going to resort to this, Jesus? Amen. Praise him. Praise him. Yes, there is a constant reining in and holding back of not just your most evil desires, but even Putin's and all the people of this world. God, in his goodness and his kindness, is restraining. And this is one of those places you're, like, you're caught up in this, this sense of like, oh my, oh my goodness, what a, what a God. But I, the thing that, that's right here for us to understand is that not only is he restraining, though, the great work of God in history is disruption. God ultimately is a tech giant. He wants to disrupt everything. What does he disrupt? All the evil men do. God plants and sows and reaps goodness. God comes into, 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 into genocides, reaches in, pulls out people with life, pulls out stories of new life, stories of, of, of bravery and joy and courage and witness and love. And, isn't it weird? God is in the business not merely of restraining, but of constantly pivoting, constantly pivoting and disrupting the very things we intend for evil and turning them into good. Even the most wicked of men cannot frustrate the endless riches and goodness of the grace of God. Praise him. You know what this text is really telling you is, brothers and sisters, let's stop being scared. Let's stop being afraid of this generation. Let's stop being afraid of what's going to happen with the Democrats or with the Republicans. Let's, get, let's stop being afraid of, 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 the, of, the, uh, of the loss of the church. Let's not be afraid of anything. For we know our Father is in control, and Jesus is tapping the world with his toe just to make sure it's still there. Because it's under his feet. Praise him. You see, this, this picture of him filling all in all, even as we have to look into the face of evil, you know, let's face it, in this generation, because of media, we, have, we get the chance to see a lot of evil going around. We have to see terrible things. We have to see the ruin of people's lives. It assaults us, let alone the stuff we look at we shouldn't look at. You know, it's just it's, it's endless. 
Oh, it's enough to cloud your heart and corrupt your mind and send you, send you screaming off into the darkness. Don't be afraid. There's never been a dark place of evil that God has not been present in. We know that because he fills all in awe. And we know that even in that moment, he was still restraining. And we know even in that moment, even in those darkest moments. What was the darkest moment of history? Calvary. True innocence, betrayed and brutalized. <gasps> right there was my hope for eternal life. See, it's everywhere. It's just in, buried in the deepest, darkest hearts of hatred is God's, God's ability to, to display his love. Oh, praise him. I, such a savior and such a God. It causes me to wonder. And I think that's exactly where this is going, you see? Because chapter one kept telling you, God is greater than you think. He's more majestic than you imagine. He plotted your, to love you before creation. Oh, in this world of flesh and the devil, he's got it. Praise him. He's got it. And what does this all become a setup for? There's, there's something being set up here. Like something, there's like a, it's a foil. There's, something, there's, a ground, there's a groundwork being laid. There's a groundwork being laid in the reality of how death possesses this generation. It seems totally sometimes. There's, there's a framework being laid in the fact that God is so sovereignly in control. It's a framework and a groundwork being laid to what? It's by grace you've been saved. That's why he says it twice. <laughs> he doesn't want to miss it. It's by grace you've been saved. Oh, no, no. Oh, no, no. You didn't get it, did you? Wonder of wonders. God loves a hard-hearted people who don't even care about the death around them. Praise him. What a Savior and what a God. There's an abundance that he wants to display. We are saved four times over, right? We are rescued by his power from God's anger. We are rescued by his power from any work of the devil. Hey, you know, let's, let's be really clear about it. Satan has to run like an errand boy if he wants to say a crossword to Gina. That's what he has to do. He has to go like an errand boy and ask, can I say a mean word to Gina? And that's, that's, that's the kind of process he's got to go through with every one of you. Praise God. God is on the throne. He has victory. Over this cosmos and this world and this generation, don't worry about these things. God holds the world in his hands. You know, um, Rome was probably the most rapacious and one of the most cr cruelest empires that ever existed. And the church conquered Rome without even trying. There was never any committee on, uh, on, uh, on, um, on uh, what would be the word for it, on renovating Rome spiritually. There was never a committee, there was never an action group, there was never an offering taken, there was never a drive, there was never a movement to save Rome. There, no. No. Not at all. He did it through his own power. And that's what we're, that's what, and, and it's a power over our flesh and this world and the devil and everything. And this is where, this is where this language here that I love so much. Uh, it, we'll take a look. Let's take a look here. But God being rich in mercy, because of the great love which he loved us in verse 4. Then look, look, look in verse 5. Even when we were dead in our trespasses, and then he gives three things that are all in the passive voice. Passive, what does passive mean? Something done to you. You don't do it yourself. It's something acted upon you. Something done by another. And what did God do? He made us alive 
to get together with Christ and raised us up with him in verse 6 and the third and seated us with him. And they're all done to and for us. And we had nothing to do with any of these. Praise him. You see, the whole setup for the rough diagnosis about the reality of death and the world, the flesh, and the devil and the tyranny and power of the happiness world was a setup for you to see that our God is greater. His riches and his grace is more powerful and more alive. And it's all a setup. It's all by grace. <laughs> and you know, it's funny at this point, it's where we get so passive. I, I was thinking about this. You know, I, 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 let me tell you something. Sometimes I, I do love evangelism. But I'll tell you one thing, you, one thing that's really hard about evangelism is you can't wake a corpse. You just can't. Uh, trust me, I, I, I've done this for years. <laughs> you're talking to somebody, you're telling them about Jesus, you're telling them about Christ, you're telling them about the greatness of God's love, you're, te- you're communicating it, but you know, dead, dead men and women don't. And you, you, you feel it, you feel this powerlessness you come up against. I want to encourage you about something. I think this text really preaches. The worse you are at evangelism, the more excited you should be about going out to do it. Because God does it all. I'm telling you, I want to get really frank here. I led more people to Christ early on in the ministry when I didn't know what I was doing than I did later when I got better at it. Does that make any sense to you at all? Makes sense to me. Because what is happening here is there's a revelation that's again and again that God wants to make clear in the world. And the reason he's describing all the people in your life as dead folks is you will get it. You'll finally start to wake up and realize it is all by grace you have been saved. It was all by a work of love from God from eternity. It was all his seeking and searching out was lost. It's all him. Praise him. Get out there and talk to people about Jesus. Because you can't mess it up. Because God saves people. While we are still dead in our trespasses and sins, made alive in Christ. Actually, you know what this is teaching? It's actually teaching that God regenerates. And then people have faith. It's a part of God's amazing work in the world is that he reaches into dead people and he makes them able to answer. And that's why you and I can be bold and go to dead folks and say, hey, I know Jesus. You should know Jesus. And you don't have to be clever. You don't have to be smart. You don't have to have a good answer. You don't have to answer their questions. No, you see, if you really want to walk in the truth of what God is revealing in this text, he is telling you, I am the author of salvation. Trust me. I was the author of yours, wasn't I? I called you, didn't I? I did the work in you, didn't I? Do you think it's going to be any different with anybody else? And I see this beckoning in this text for us to trust God with the work of rescuing sinners. I encourage you again and again, invite people to church. Don't worry about whether they understand it or they think I'm insane. That's fine. That'll be part of the fun. Because as we tell a story here about how unlikely it is that we should be able to lead anybody to Jesus, we are trusting him again and again to do the work for us, you see? And and, and one of the things I love about this is that, I guess in a sense, it, it frees up this generation for me. You know, everything about evangelism since the Second Great Awakening and revivalism 
has often, not everything, but a lot of evangelism has been this effort to, to manipulate, to get, to get a response, to, to make the gospel look so pretty that anybody would want it. You know, and it's kind of, these, these pictures of just, of somehow, of, of setting the right tones. You know, I, I remember a worship leader describing that if they slowed down just as I am, without one plea, it's an old song that used to be popular amongst Baptists, just as I, if I slowed it down, more people went forward to give their life to Jesus. You know what that means? That's just manipulation. Then. There's nothing life-changing there. But so much of American evangelism is just that. It's to manipulate you to feel something, to respond to something, to want something. It has not been a display of the almighty power of the choosing God, whose choices shape the world, whose words shape creation, whose words even from the pulpit make new lives happen. And our trust needs to totally be in him, not in me, not in ourselves, not in anything else. And all this invitation is, is for us to, to be lost in wonder again at all we've been rescued from and through, and lost in wonder again at the greatness of this God and the greatness of our salvation, of, of a rescue completely purchased by him. You know, um, we're going to look at this as the, in the weeks ahead. because, And this is why you're invited to give your trust in Jesus. Trust Jesus. Trust faith. Faith. Well, why is it always about faith? Because it's one of the only ways we can get rid of your, yours and my obnoxious desire to constantly insert ourselves in our own salvation. <laughs> no, it's something I did. No, it's something that I have earned. No, it's something that I need. It's something that, that I deserve. No. You were saved and loved the same way as this text says. You were loved when you didn't love him. Praise him. And now I, I want us to go out with new boldness. And, and maybe what we really need is where I started. Maybe we just need God to wake us to his vision of the world. Wake us up so we, so we see it, so we have passion for it. So we have new... And, and I'll tell you what, if, if we get a vision for what death of this generation really is, we have no choice but to turn to God and cry out for him to work because there's no hope in us. There's no possibility of hope for this generation. Take a look around. What are we, 15 people? If that? Uh, I, know, I know a Savior. I know a God who did far more with far less. Praise him! Praise him. Let's pray. Oh, my father, dear father, I feel so weak today. I feel so powerless. I feel so much like I, I, I don't have what it takes or something, or something is so wrong in me, father. And uh, I just throw myself on the richness of your mercy. I am, um, you know, week in and week out, I, I often will feel like I, I preach to no, to no avail, Father. I, there's no purpose in it. I know it's a lie. It's a lie straight out of hell. Father, will you reveal to us and show us your great power? Will you show us the greatness of your mercy? Would you quicken our hearts? Would you aliven us with new compassion for the dead we walk among? 
Would you enliven us to a new sense of wonder and the grace which we have in Christ? And the new possibility that even our most ineffective witness is, doesn't matter where your, where your work and your power are concerned. Well, Father, I just pray to be set free and to set loose and for you to show and reveal your mercy again in this generation. And I pray that for the glory of Jesus. Amen.